Okay, let's jump into the text here today. Uh, the wealthiest person in the world, I guess it goes up and down. Um, I, I'm guessing none of your names are on that list, but if so, let me know. I have uh, something to talk to you about. Uh, it's actually the Arnault family right now, Bernard Arnault in France. If you were to take their wealth and divide it equally among everyone else in the world, we would all be able to buy a hamburger. No. We, we would all get $30, about $30 if I did my math right. Uh, that's not that much. Now, in places of the world, that's a month's living. Uh, but it's still not enough to help everyone out beyond just a few days. So even the wealthiest person in the world's riches are not enough. We need something that goes beyond just material wealth, something beyond that limited amount of any one individual to something that would be uh, eternal and infinite. Uh, we actually need something more than just physical blessing. We need spiritual blessing, infinite spiritual blessing. And that comes to us from God himself, and I believe flows right, right from this text. So no matter what our need is today, we need to go to this text. We need to come and find in the riches of Christ our satisfaction, our provision, our well-being from the gospel. So we'll dive into this today and pray that these riches would be yours, that each of us would, would find that sense as we leave today. Now we've been going through this and uh, verses 1 to 3, I'm just going to take a few moments to review this. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3. And, and it's kind of the beginning of this next major section in Paul's discourse that's bringing us all to be without excuse. Chapter 1, all those who are sinful are without excuse. Anybody remember the word that we use to describe chapter 2 on all those who are what? It begins with an M. Moral, good. All those who are sinful, chapter 1, are without excuse. And now, chapter 2, all those who are moral, we have this religious sense, and just kind of think that this is actually all of Queens, maybe more than anywhere else in the world. I don't know, per capita. There's 2 million people here, 2.2 million, and a lot of these folks are just very moral, religious people. And Queens is not very secular. We find a lot of religious systems and world systems in Queens that are very moral. So I think chapter 2 really fits our neighborhood, and especially the borough of Queens. Now, as he works with the moral people, he's just kind of uh, naming all the sinful things that all of us are without excuse because of the things we do. But as we look at all of those items from chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, the litany there, we might think, well, I'm not that bad in this, 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 and this. And so he's going to then give us some rhetorical questions to help us think carefully about us also being without excuse, or you also, even if you're moral or religious, the way you were raised. And actually, I think all of us feel this way. Uh, even those who are very, even atheists, they say, but I'm a decent person. I, you could probably go on death row and say, yeah, but I just, you know, this person's, but it was just that one week, or it was just that one month, or it was just those 10 years. But really, in my heart, I'm a decent person. So everyone, actually, he's talking to here. We all get on our high horse, and we start being judgmental of others. And so he's going to put us in this school classroom, He's going to teach us that our morality is not enough. That's where everybody goes to thinking, well, I'm okay. 
And the first three verses dealt with the moralist in the sense of, I'll get by because they're going to grade on the curve. The question is, do you think you will escape the judgment of God because you are being judgmental toward others? As soon as you feel like you're being graded on the curve, what you're doing there is saying, I hope everyone does worse than me, and I'm looking around and I think I'm okay. Because I was like in the middle of the class, and as long as it's graded on the curve, I should be okay. But he's going to say, no, you have no excuse, number one. All right, so there's that first one. Perhaps if everyone else is worse, they will be graded. Uh, they will grade me on the curve and I'll get by. Or God will grade me on the curve and I'll get by. But that's not the case. Right? You have no excuse. For as you judge one another, and this is where we were last week, you can kind of see the notes there. I'm just going to skip over this. Um, right? Why do you misjudge others by 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 judging others, right? You misjudge yourself by judging others, right? Who is unexcused? You are. You who judge. You who judge and practice the same things. Why are they unexcused? The verses tell us God's judgment rightly falls on everyone. Everyone has practiced sin and all of us fall short of the glory of God. God is unbiased in judgment. None will escape. So that was the big conclusion of what he said last week. And we really only got through half the sermon. Um, so, Thought one, or rhetorical question one, maybe I'll get by? Well, Paul says, do you think you'll get by? Do you actually think you'll be without excuse? No, none of us get by. That is a bad conclusion to come to. And so if you look in your text, you see these questions. See at the end of verse 3, there's a question. the end of verse 4, there's another question. And so he's helping us ask questions and bring us to the conclusion and saying, don't follow that train of thought. All of you are going to be thinking this way. Don't do it. May it never be. And so Paul is, is going to do this throughout the whole letter of Romans. All right. Now, today we get into the second section. The second maybe question that we may come to is, okay, the classroom as God sets it up, he's going to be just really kind and gracious and he's going to let everybody through. Or, I mean, especially me, I've been pretty good. So, like, I got an 85, and these other folks did a 25, so maybe he'll let me through because he's really kind. And so he's going to say that's the wrong conclusion, too. The only conclusion you can come to, remember, in this classroom is his only begotten son is sitting in the class. He was perfect, and he has set up the classroom so that his perfect score can go to your account, and your bad grade can go to his, and he can suffer your punishment, and he can let you go free. That's the only way out. But we're tempted to think, yeah, but I'm doing pretty good. I'm moral. So God's going to be tolerant of me and let me through. Okay, so this is the second idea. But what that does is it thinks lightly of God's loving kindness and mercy. It thinks incorrectly about that. Because it's not based on the gospel. It's based again on my works. Okay, so that will be clear as we go through this. Today, verse 4, kind of the, the good news of it. And the next week, verse 5 and 6, kind of the, the bad news of it. Okay. So the good news of, of this, the gospel side of it, the, uh, the good news of the gospel side, why do you misunderstand God's kindness? You don't understand God's kindness. Don't despise God's rich kindness to you. Instead, verses 5 and 6, we'll see next week, receive God's kindness. Repent and receive it. Believe it. Take the grade that Jesus has earned. Don't keep trying to earn it yourself. 
Okay, so verse 4, we'll just unpack today. What do you think? And it's all about what you think. What do you think and what don't you know? What do you think and what don't you know? And you can see the two words, think and know. And so he's teaching us how to think God's thoughts after him. Do you think and you don't know something if you're thinking that way? All right, so let's jump into verse 4. And I love verse 4. It's just, uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful verse. Um, We could summarize it this way. God's glorious mercy spurs repentance. God's glorious mercy spurs repentance. If you're having a difficult time today repenting, turning to God, then just open your heart to this message. And God will spur you to a life of repentance. What do you think? Don't despise God's goodness. What do you think? Don't despise God's rich kindness, His goodness. Um, So verse 4 starts that way. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? The action here is to think down about. To think down about. Uh, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? Uh, The word think lightly of is despise, to feel contempt for something or someone because you're thinking it's of little value or bad. It's to scorn, to look down on. You'll get all the uses of both the Greek translation of the Old Testament and, and the Greek New Testament. They're never positive. It's never good for you to think down on others, to look down on others. And it's the, the mind that looks down on others that starts to think down on others. The mind that thinks down on others that looks down on others. We should never be doing this toward one another and toward others, but especially not about God. What he's telling us is, if you don't understand the gospel correctly, you're thinking down on His goodness. There's a way to think about God. There's a way to think about God, and He's revealing to us in the way that we should think about Him and what He's done for us. And if we're not thinking that way, as he reveals here, we're taking it lightly. We're taking lightly the fact that Jesus has earned all our grades. You may not say that, but if you're trying to mix your works with it, or the saints' works with it, or your five pillars, or your seven sacraments, or your baptism, or your church membership, if you're trying to add anything else to the grades that Jesus earned, you're thinking down on God's mercy. And that's what he's talking about. So let's look at them here. Look at the, beyond the actions, let's look at the objects. Beautiful thing to think above about. Think highly of. And so that's what I want us to do today, to take a moment and just think highly of God. Think highly of all that He's done for us. So look at the objects of this action of thought. Uh, Think about the richness of his kindness, right? So each of these attributes of God are defined as rich. It's not just that he's sparing in this area. It's not just that he's a miser in this area. And at times, if we're not careful, we think about God that way. He's holding back. He's not wanting to give. He's um, in, in some way too scrupulous and looking for a way out in showering his goodness and kindness to us. But that's not the case. He is rich in mercy. He's slow to anger. Right? But, but his, 
Clouds are rich with blessings ready to burst on our head. He is wealthy in that way. He is the, the, oh, the riches of the glory of God. There is no bottom to his bank account in these areas. The opposite of stingy. And so we say, uh, I, I, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He goes on and says, I, I can go with good, I can go with little, um, because what's 419? In Christ, I'm, forget, I'm blanking on it. I have to look it up. My God will supply all your needs. There it is. According to what? His riches in Christ Jesus. Right. And so it's the riches of Christ Jesus that give us hope. It's the riches of Christ Jesus that give us hope for everything, all of our spiritual and physical needs. So let's look at them. Let's look at them and let God sink them into our soul. The richness of his what? First object, the riches of his kindness, his kindness, his goodness, his graciousness. Do you recognize that in God's nature, he is good and gracious and kind? The opposite of cruel, severe. You think of cruelty, you're thinking of Satan. Satan is a deceiver, an adversary. If you think of God, you're thinking of Kindness and grace, mercy. No one is as rich towards you as God's kindness towards you. No one is as kind to you as God is kind to you. Only God loves and is kind to you in this way. Never will run out of God's kindness. It can never come to the point where the ink runs dry. No more kindness. No. Never continue to the ATM machine of God's kindness and it's gone. No, it's always a plethora of kindness. Whenever you come to God, there is kindness. There's richness in kindness. Second one is similar and goes a little further. He's rich in tolerance. God is rich in His kindness toward us. He's also rich in His tolerance. The word tolerance there has reference to holding back. God holding back, tolerant by holding back something. And the picture is that he's holding back what we rightly deserve. He's holding back the judgment and wrath and punishment that we rightly deserve. You and I deserve this. In fact, as we go on, we'll find the next time this occurs is in Romans 3 toward the end, where he says he is held back on the wrath that the Old Testament saints deserved and everyone all the way from Genesis to the cross deserved, and then he placed that on his son. And so you can picture this. You can picture God kind of holding a container that's filled with my sin. And each day I'm adding to the weight and another boulder and another boulder and another boulder and he's holding and he's holding and he's holding and he's holding and he's holding. And, he's holding. and I deserve all of the wrath for one of them. But he's holding it all back. All that I deserved. And then he, as, as we see in the gospel, he places all of it on his son. All of your sin on himself. He comes for that purpose. And this just demonstrates the riches of his kindness. Why would I ever think that I could merit it myself? That's despising his kindness to you. Because he took it at the cross. He's holding back. He's holding back all the wrath that we deserve and the 
the boulders that you and I have placed against God, transgressing His commands. But if you could just multiply that by 8 million people, 2.2 million people in Queens, and it's like building, 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 building. It's like when is the floodgate just going to release? He's holding back. It's amazing that God is holding back for our city, for our neighborhoods, for myself. It's the mercy of God. He is tolerant that way. No one is as rich to you. No one cares for you like Jesus. No one is ever as tolerant towards you as Jesus. And so this week, if you have failed Him once again, let me encourage you to go once again to the cross. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Trust in the Gospel. Not that I was okay this morning, but that Jesus paid for all of my bad deeds and has given me all of His righteousness. No one is rich as rich to us in tolerance as God. And then the third one here is similar to that. He's rich in what? Patience. Rich in patience. God is similar holding back, but waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Like that teacher that was able to wait for you to, to turn in the class, the last test to the last moment. They were just so patient. God is patient and patient and patient and patient. Love Second Peter chapter three verse nine as people are saying, "Well, the Lord is delaying His wrath; He's delaying His anger. When is God's anger to come down on this wicked generation?" Second Peter three nine: The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. That's the only reason He hasn't poured His wrath upon me, upon our city, upon our neighborhood, upon every city in the world. Why, Lord? Why are you so patient? Thank you. I praise you for your patience. Recognize that God is rich in patience toward you. No one is as patient toward you. No one ever was patient for you as much as Jesus. No teacher, no parent, no sibling, no spouse has ever been as patient toward you as Jesus. And every time someone is patient with you, it's just a glimmer of the patience that God has toward you. Well, we think incorrectly of God's, God's character. He is so patient toward you. Charles was an evangelist, spent most of his life an itinerant that way, and probably neglected his family because of it. One day after returning home from an evangelistic crusade, he found a note left by his wife of many years saying she had enough of that life and she left him. Left him to despondency, wrecked his, his sense of patience, of love, uh, despair, he really did feel um, like no one cared for him. Gradually, his spiritually faith was restored again in the gospel of Christ, and he felt compelled to write a song that left that message. Um, it says, All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me, and he led me in the way I ought to go. Every day is more patience and assurance. More and more I understand his words of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me till someday I see his face above. And then what's the chorus? Yeah, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. 
There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. And if we can't sing that, then we are despising his kindness and forbearance and his loving kindness toward us. It's only Christ. Only Christ. God loves you today in Jesus. And when you sense that, when you sense that, what do you want to do? You want to praise him. You want to love him. You want to live for him. It's not the law. The law makes us run for him and say, I need mercy in Jesus. But when we see his mercy and his loving kindness, we want to live for him. And that's his message here in verse 4. The second idea here is we're thinking the wrong way about God. We're thinking the wrong way about His kindness and His tolerance and His patience because the kindness of God does what? It leads you to repentance. It's God's kindness that does that. What don't you know? We may just not realize that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. If you haven't really fathomed the character of our God in this way, and you think, well, yeah, maybe towards someone else, but God would never forgive me of all my sin, or maybe, maybe towards someone else, but not me, I'm, I'm excluded. No, no, God's kind and rich in love for you. And when you sense that, you want to follow Him. And so it's actually what leads us to repentance. Just think of a pet. If you treat them well, they want to follow you. Now, we have dogs, so they want to follow you no matter what, no matter how you treat them. But some pets, it's just as you take care of them, there's, like, there's a, a bond there. right? Um, as, as we see the loving kindness of the Lord, we're just like, Lord, let me get by your side. I want to be so close to the shepherd because he's leading me by beside still waters. And so that makes us repent, right? the kindness of God. If you just think of God as angry and severe, He is angry at sin. But you don't recognize that He did something about that in love and He became man to die for our sin. Then you have a wrong view of God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And we want to we love this God who loves us. Now, repentance is an important word. So we'll just take a moment with this. It's the first time it's come up in Romans and it's a big part of our study. So we have to understand what repentance is. It occurs about 32 times as a verb in the New Testament, about 22 times as a noun. Um, it has reference to, literally, specifically, changing your mind and heart. But as you follow all the passages where it's used, it, it's always reflected in a change of life. Right? It's a change of mind. That's actually the literal words. Right? You turn in your mind. But, but it's not just thinking the facts about it and changing the facts about it. That, that has reference to your heart change, a heart change, a conversion, repentance, changing my mind about this sin. I no longer want this sin. I'm 180 away from that sin toward Christ. It's turning from sin and self and trusting in God. And so Paul would preach this way. John baptized with the baptism of repentance. What is the repentance there, Paul? Telling the people to believe in Him who is coming after Him that is in Jesus. The message of repentance is no longer trusting in self to fill up your column, but trusting in Jesus. Turn from self, turn from sin, 
trust in Jesus. So faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Jesus defines this as what will come of all who are following him. Take up your cross and follow him. So these actions of repentance are real. And so the Pharisees are coming to be baptized. You brood of vipers, why are you coming as Pharisees? You're just hypocrites. Show fruit of repentance. Let me see the heart change reflected in how you live. And so our change of mind is reflected in a change of life. I am going to give a definition and a plug for our soteriology class. We started this, our first class, this Sunday. Um, Next Sunday, we'll go to the, actually, chapter one. So if you want to purchase this, you can. It's like five bucks, or you can come in person and get a free copy. Uh, But let me just read the definition by Dr. Leighton Talbert uh, for repentance. An active, now this is part of our Bible Institute, right? So, so patience here. An active Volitional, what does that mean? I choose to do it. My will is involved. An active volitional responsibility. Okay, he's, he's being very careful here. So it's not just that, well, I'm not repenting, so whatever. God didn't give me repentance. He talks about repentance being a gift of God. No, you're commanded to repent. It's an active volitional responsibility which God commands of men. Namely, the voluntary change of mind on the part of a sinner in which he turns from his sin in repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Acts 3.19, While it is often thought of and defined in terms of the emotional aspect of sorrow for sin, and we think, boy, I really feel sorry. Judas was very sorry for sin, and Peter was very sorry for sin. Okay? So it's not just being sorry and crying. The fruit must be the change of heart that believes in the gospel and God actually regenerates that person to where they start living the life of Christ. Metanoia, a change of mind, denotes not sorrow for sin, but abandonment of sin. Okay, like 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10, where repentance is the result of godly sorrow for sin, not identical to it, a volitional step beyond mere emotion. I realize that's long. But maybe that will help. And if you didn't get all of that, go ahead and get get into the class. But this is a choice that's a result of of God changing my mind, where I'm no longer wanting my sin, I'm leaving my sin. And then for the rest of my life, the Bible uses a present tense term. I'm always repenting of my sin. It's not that I can continue to live in that sin. As soon as I say, like, Lord... I'm so sorry. I'm turning from that sin. I'm always turning from that sin. I'm always trusting in Jesus. It's a continual thing. If you can continually live in sin, you are not a changed person by the gospel. Because because a person who is born again will... It's not that they will never sin. They will continue to repent of their sin. They'll continue to turn. Does that make sense? If you have questions about that, let me know. But this is the gospel. Turning from sin... Trusting in Jesus. But what brings that? According to this verse. The mercy of God. The love of God. The kindness of God. The the repentance that is built on law and Pharisaism will give you no lasting spiritual fruit. 
It's a gospel-motivated life change that will well up to a, a consistency of living for Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Not, oh, I'm so afraid of God that I'm going to have to make sure I try to do right today. No, thank you, God, for giving me your forgiveness. Help me, by your grace, to live for you. It's the gospel that gives consistent obedience. The law gives conviction and a need for repentance. And so we, we love the Lord for His loving kindness and His mercy towards us. Let me close here with just a quick uh, thought. Uh, is this just the God of the New Testament? No. This is God. God is, has not changed. Uh, I love this picture. You think of one of Israel's kind of bad days, bad months was when God brought them out of Egypt. I mean, just with an amazing, miraculous hand, totally spoiled Egypt, ruined their army, destroyed the whole place because they would not repent um, and listen to God's message. But then Israel gets to Mount Sinai and it's like there's no pressure there. He starts feeding them every day. Supernatural, miraculous feeding. And what do they do? They fall into idol worship at the mountain. They're seeing the glory of the flame of God and they're fearful saying, Moses, you go up there. We can't go up there. This holy, amazing God. You go talk to him. Moses goes up and they fall into immorality. The idea is, is probably an orgy as they are worshiping the, these golden calves. The, the sound of the music and the it's just horrible. And so God's ready to destroy him. Moses prays and, and he says, I'll have mercy in. But but as as during that transition, God says to Moses, Come again. And Moses says, Show me your glory. Right? Show me your glory. Show me your name. What is it that you are? And God says, okay, come up on the mountain and I will, I will reveal to you my glory. And if you follow this, it's quoted a lot in the Old Testament. It's almost like the creed of the Old Testament to show who God is. And you might think if you go there, it would be, I am the Lord, the Lord exacting and cruel and holy and unapproachable. This is the center and core of God's character. But what does he say to Moses? He says, be ready in the morning and come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain and I will reveal to you my glory. This is a, a good little book. If you're looking for a nice devotional, there's a whole chapter on this in Gentle and Lowly by Ortland. He says, short of the incarnation itself, this is perhaps the high point of divine revelation in all the Bible. I agree. This is one of my favorite passages to meditate and think about. Who is God? And he says, the Lord, the Lord is. He mentions his name twice. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, what? Compassionate. Gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Keeps loving and kindness 
He's holding it up. It is like it's stored up, ready to come out. It's not the wrath that's stored up. That's what he's pushing off. But it's the mercy drops that are ready to come upon anyone who will repent and believe him. It's loving kindness for a thousand. Forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will not leave. And this is verses 5 and 6 from Romans 2 we'll get to. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And then... It's a thousand generations that he shows his loving kindness, but it's visiting the iniquity of the father and the children to the third and fourth generation. So thousands of generations of loving kindness, three and four generations of, I would pray that the sin would be broken by the gospel in, and the repentance in this life, that you are not following your parents' example. But it's thousands of generations to those who love and follow him. And Moses made haste, and bowed, bowed in worship. And that's what we have to do. This amazing God. Garden of Eden, all of us deserved totally be thrown away forever. And God gave us mercy. And then every day, ever since, humanity has been heaping the boulders, heaping the boulders of judgment. And God says, I'm gracious and compassionate. I will come myself. And I will bear all that wrath. Orland says this, the Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who He is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons, a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Light thoughts of his kindness. The fall entrenched these dark thoughts in us. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts about God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place. Rather than relishing and enjoying the mercy and good love of God. That satisfies the soul. So you need none of that cesspool of sin. Because you're filled with the love of God. This is our God. Full of loving compassion and truth. This is how God reveals himself in the Bible. And then Jesus comes. Jesus humbles himself. Gentle and lowly at heart. Not vindictive and strict and proud of heart. No, gentle and lowly of heart. He's born in a stable He's choosing 12 rough-around-the-edges young men to build up. He's touching the leper. He's making the blind see. He's taking the little children in his arms as others are casting them off. He's calling the notorious sinner to leave all and follow him. This is the heart of God. This is the representation, the exact representation of his nature. And this should be our nature toward one another. Running to Christ, rejoicing in the gospel, Fleeing sin, grasping his patience and love. This is what Jesus did. Founder of Rhodes Scholarship, this family was offering a dinner, and a young man came straight to the dinner. This is like with other wealthy, well dressed people, but this young man had to come with unkempt, traveled in stained clothes, and he's embarrassed to appear at the dinner. 
Rhodes hears about this, and he's the last one to arrive, and everyone's looking at this young man and uh, wondering where Rhodes is. He finally comes in, and he changed his own clothes to match the young man so he wouldn't feel out of place. Cecil, good example there. This is what Christ has done. He's changed his clothes. He became human. He took on human flesh. He suffered. He cried that he might bear the wrath we all deserve. He became a baby. We find the mercy of God on Mount Sinai. We find the greatest mercy of God kissing the greatest justice and wrath of God on the Mount of Calvary where mercy can flow freely because God's wrath was taken. Let me encourage you today, come to Christ. In just a moment on another mountain, he shared his transfiguration. He shared who he was, but on Mount Calvary, he shared the heart of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, changing his clothes to wash our feet, dying in our stead, spiritually washing all of our feet. Ask him for this cleansing, please. Come to an end of moralizing and, and think greatly of his mercy. Up on a mountain, Moses falls on his face because of his people's sinful disgrace, rejecting God's gracious, redeeming grace by turning to idols they all disobeyed. Would God offer hope or throw all away? In glorious fire, God shared glorious hope. He shared from his heart his covenant love, mercy, compassion, patient and true, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, calls all his people to turn back to him. Up on a mountain we fall on our face. God's only loved son dies in disgrace. Paying God's wrath, he dies in our place. Showing again God's mercy and justice, justice to him and mercy to us, to all of us who repent of sin and in Jesus' trust. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me encourage you today to do that. Relish God. Relish God and his glorious gospel. Number one, remember God's love to you in Christ. Remember that. Think about that. And when we close, we'll kind of come here around the piano and remember it in picture form through the Lord's table. But let me encourage you to repent. If there's sin in your life, the glorious gospel of God should call out to us to turn from that sin and trust in Jesus. And then thirdly, let me encourage you to reflect his love toward others. Let this gospel forgiveness, this gospel patience, this gospel love flow through you to others around you.